Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. It's the Valentine Day Sunday Sessions, 14th of February, 2021. Well, thank you so much for joining me on our weekly time of exploring nature-centered folklore, connecting to your favorite sanctuary space, and expressing inspired visions from your sanctuary through your poetry, writing, arts, craft, performance, and problem solving. Now, today's Sunday session on Valentine's Day, well, it's not typically Valentine, unfortunately. It's water dragons, serpents, and snakes. And today, I'm, we're going to focus on various things, water dragony and serpenty, water serpents, kundalini, and how dragons got into the Celtic folklore through a sort of back door. And, uh, and there's a couple of pictures, if I can get the photos going. We're sticky again. There we go. Uh, this is out at Hazelwood, and there's that wooden dragon that was out uh, in the lock there, Lockgill. And each time we visited it to get closer and closer in, and there it is when it uh, came ashore. Now, dragon lines and uh, dragons and serpents as water bearers going to be covering that as well. And uh, unfortunately, don't have any guests today. I did put it out there for any Reiki masters or anybody who uses or teaches or facilitates Kundalini in their practice to please come live because I wouldn't say I was the most experienced at that. Uh, I wasn't talked too well on it. Anyway, it's just me. I hope you don't mind. It's going to be just me today. Uh, after loads of guests, lovely guests last week, and we got some lovely guests next week. So it's just me uh, today. But I trust you'll enjoy. There's plenty of pictures and a lot of fun things to go through. And um, there, uh, I was hoping for a panel session, but later on, let's have a bit of a Q&A about uh, this subject. It's probably a little bit weird, so do join if you wish. And if you wish to volunteer, do leave a message, and I can send you a a live link, a live URL, so you can uh, join join me here. And anyway, uh, I think I better see who's with us today, who's braved uh, their early bit of Valentine's to come and say hello. Uh, who have we got here? There's a few people watching, I see, but nobody's actually left a comment yet. So I'll come back to you very soon. But thank you for people who are watching and I'll come back to you Soon. So these Karakroi sessions and Labyrinth Gardens, uh, when people can come here after the COVID, they're brought to you largely due to uh, Patreon subscribers. And some of you are already Patreon subscribers that are watch watching today. So I'm very, very, uh, always very grateful because it makes it possible I can pay the subscriptions and uh, cover the costs, which I might not be able to do otherwise without your support. I probably couldn't be here this afternoon hosting this. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's see, uh, what is a dragon? I think that's a, a sort of a first question to come up with. And uh, as I say, we have, I'll say, the water bearers. That's a lovely picture within a cave. I think that's a beautiful one because it looks very dragon-like, doesn't it? But anyway, this is probably what you're more familiar with. Uh, what is a dragon? And uh, in the West, most of us think of fire-breathing, four-legged, uh, and uh, with wings, something a bit like that, if you remember the uh, Merlin series that uh, the BBC did. And uh, in the East, they're, they're, the dragons there in the East, they don't have any fire. There's no wings. Uh, they're four-legged, but they're highly intelligent, wise, and though they look pretty fierce, they're, they're very supportive, very uh, friendly, and uh, they're protectors uh, for the East, the Orient. And, uh, of course, dragons, they're celebrated uh, there because to them they have the power over the water, the power over the rain. Um, so we've had plenty of dragon uh, action here, haven't we? Uh, today, anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway, to look at the uh, dragon word origins. And I've read somewhere that... Uh, one of the origin words was dracon. It means scaly, and uh, for good reason. There's a scaly side of a dragon there. 
But I'm not sure uh, what uh, language that actually comes from. But I've heard the word dragon actually comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, draca, uh, which is uh, a winged creature that evolves from what we call a worm. And that worm, I haven't put it up, um, but it's W-Y-R-M, uh, if you want to put uh, our letters to it. It's a worm, a serpent from the earth, and there's a sort of real artistic impression of one. Uh, quite something, isn't it? And um, this worm being a serpent from the earth, if uh, you're on Spotify or Apple, look up uh, Jack the Lad. They're from Northumbria many years ago. And they put a medieval story into song uh, on an album called The Old Straight Track, uh, which actually the album has songs of a lot of things I'm going to be talking about today. But one of the songs is called The Worm, and it's about a jealous witch who turns a beautiful woman into a serpent. Uh, the serpent becomes a dragon uh, in Northumbria. And there's a lonely Frenchman who wants to slay this dragon, come over the water, slay the dragon, and become a near hero because he was a very shy man. He wanted to do something to impress the women. So he goes to Northumbria in a sailboat, with, and he has a rowan mast. And, of course, rowan is there to protect men. It calls the goddess to them to protect them and protect spells from the witch. But, so he faces the dragon with a sword, but this dragon is crying. And so the uh, dragon uh, explains to him that uh, instead of slaying her, he should kiss her three times, and he will have a nice surprise. So on the first kiss, she cried. The second kiss, she smiled. And then on the third kiss, she turned into the beautiful Lady Margaret, which I did have a picture of, but she's not there, unfortunately. <laughs> anyway, this concludes, uh, like these tales do, uh, with a marriage, uh, living in a castle, uh, happily ever after, as they all do, and all that stuff. But this tale seems uh, Saxon, uh, came to Northumbria, maybe with, it came with the Danes, I don't know where this story, but it seems to be believed that the Saxons brought to Britain the word draca, and that evolved from the Greek verb derkamaya. And I'm sorry, I haven't got this up, but, but that means to see clearly, derkamaya. Now, there's an aorist form of that word in Greek that turns it into a past event form. And that word is drakon, D-R-A-K-O-N. And that roughly changes the meaning uh, from to see clearly from to enchantment or even acquired wisdom or vision. So this brings me back to the folklore of visions from the wells, the holy wells that I tell on the Sunday sessions sometimes uh, as being a place of vision, but also as being crossing points of the dragon lines, of the water dragon lines being the crossing points. And that is said to be what makes some of these wells sacred and um, why an ordinary spring well is declared as a sacred well. Now, stories of these um, crossing points are being uh, where the water dragons take their rest. So where there's a crossing point, there's a spring and there's a well. It said the water dragons take their rest and they enchant prophetic visions to anybody who dares to peek down into the water of the wells. And uh, I think I've got a little imagery as well. This is a lovely... Just to give the sense of uh, feeling, give the sense of atmosphere. It's not a well, but it's a pool of water. And imagine if you look into that. There you go. You've got the dragon enchanting you looking up. Uh, that, that's my take on that one anyway. Uh, now, during uh, other Sunday sessions, I've also spoken of well visions being from the she and the fey. They respond to the chorus for visions from the wells when people seeking and they're praying, they're meditating. And the stories from the imagery of the she, the fey, uh, and water serpents and the water dragons are all very similar uh, in the stories. Now, during past Sunday sessions, I've also spoken of the north and south nodes in our astrology charts. Uh, and there's the symbols of them there. And those each being uh, the individual uh, dragon line and uh, that we each live now the south uh if i got something uh here now the south node we are uh, 
born, uh, they said we are born from, so let's use that imagery, born from water, uh, from a vision uh, pool. And the north node is the life sky from that vision. And there we go. You go from a still water there that we're born from, that we look for our visions and connection to. And then when things are flowing, uh, there's the life's guide of our vision, because we're talking about water things today, aren't we? Now, some stories tell us of us always having been umbilically connected to the Earth goddess. And I love this picture of the Earth goddess. She seems pretty connected to the Earth there. And other folk uh, stories tell us have always been connected to the Earth serpent or a dragon. So take your choose, you connected umbilically <laughs> to the goddess or if you were at the East and the Orient, especially a couple of days ago, which was the Chinese New Year, is the sort of veil between the connection to the Earth Serpent and Dragon. And there's other folklore stories tell of the fiery Earth Dragon being converted to a water dragon, or just pure water by the goddess. And this happens during the transformation time from Sawan to Embork. And I hope you can make sense of that. That's the sort of artist portrayal of that transformation going on. And that uh, transformed water being the water that fertilizes the land uh, with new life uh, in spring, an in-bulk experience that we should be going through where we are. Snow is melting. We've got quite a bit of water here and wind. And it's actually starting to turn sunny and nice now. But there's no evidence of belief in dragons from the Stone Age, Bronze Age, or Iron Age. But there is art from the Iron Age, and also through medieval scribing, that does seem to include dragon type of symbols. There's, here's a couple of stone ones. Uh, I don't know where they're from. Uh, they're museum pieces, but where they were taken from, unfortunately, I can't tell you. But there's another one there. Uh, so there is some sort of uh, reference, it seems. Uh, but uh, after the flight of the Earls, uh, early 17th century, um, France, Belgium, wasn't it? I think they all went into the sort of Gaelic uh, chieftains after being driven out, or they escaped before they were kind of confiscated by the English rebellion going on at the time. Uh, but there were, one of these... Um, Earls, uh, an ex exiled girl, uh, uh, Sovereign McDonnell, he commissioned the old uh, Doherty to compile the Dunanfin uh, book, a collection of Finian lays, and he compiled it in Belgium in the early 17th century. And I haven't got any pages of this, unfortunately, but these included a story called The Pursuit of the Sleeve Drum. And this is a story of the dragon slaying antics of Finn McCall. It said the 17th century, they're writing up stories of Finn McCall going off uh, with the Fianna and slaying dragons. And uh, this story reads like a catalogue of islands, locks, bogs, and rivers uh, as it goes along and accounts for the slaying of dragons. And these are dragons and serpents in these stories. They're not the fiery ones. They're actually water serpents uh, in Loch Nee, Kulin, Urn, Irk, Lane, Reef, Sean, Foil, Emer, Milge, Sarah, Mask, Liger, and uh, River Lurg, and Loch Lurgan. And uh, rivers as well, uh, quite famous. There's a lot of stories of serpents within the Shannon and the Ban, for instance. Anyway, I'll take a break for a moment and see what you're saying. I see you making some comments here. Uh, lovely to see you here. And uh, we've got Sharon May Nickel. Good morning, all glad to be here with you. Snuggled in bed with soup, hot water bottle. Uh, it has been that sort of day. Uh, you didn't say where you were from, but um, if you are actually where we are here, surprisingly, we've had this massive change. We had snow this morning, then we had some heavy rain, and now it's mild and very spring-like, and the sun's coming out. And tonight, this evening, Valentine's evening, we should get a clear, starry sky and very mild, no frost tonight. And we, we certainly got the transition from winter to spring going on. So uh, maybe you'll be out of bed soon because of the weather getting better. And there's a regular Donna, uh, Donna Johnson sitting by the fireplace, looking forward to the story of fire spirits. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to water them down because we're on the water dragons today. So um, 
I trust uh, it'll still be interesting for you. And there's uh, uh, Donna again, uh, snowy New Mexico. We got the polar vortex today, which never happens in February. Well, there you go. And Shell, hello from Wisconsin, minus 23C. Oh, goodness, very, very cold there. But thank you for, if you're laying in bed, what you're doing. And uh, I trust I'm not going to water down your day too much. Maybe it should have been fire dragons, but that was uh, the Sawan uh, subject. And, of course, I split it up into two because there's so much to say on dragons and serpents. Well, I find there's plenty to say. Anyway, but so really, uh, what is a serpent? You know, I've talked of dragons a bit. There's a, a bit of a, a serpenty thing there. And a serpent. Uh, well, and I suppose, how is this different to a dragon? Uh, from the Latin serpents, that's where the word seems to have come, a crawling animal. Snake, they say, equals fertility. But serpent is sinful. <laughs> Uh, and according to the Webster's New World Dictionary, a snake is a treacherous or deceitful person. I think that's been in conversation over the last couple of days. And a serpent, as I say, that's the snake, treacherous and deceitful. But the serpent is sly, sneaky, and also a treacherous person. That's what the dictionary says. And uh, some of the reasons for saying that is uh, the characters they have Forked tongues. There we go. Well, this is a snake with a forked tongue. Just to remind you, if you're not familiar. And uh, there was a serpent. It's uh, quite famous uh, in the East. Uh, the shielded Buddha from the elements, so that he uh, being protected through meditation, so that his meditation wouldn't be disturbed. And uh, it said that uh, Buddha's weight was supported by a coiled, triple-headed serpent. Well, I don't have that, but I think this is a lovely another image of. Uh, Again, thinking of the Buddha, but it's a Kundalini experience. And I'm going to be talking as best I can about the Kundalini experience very soon. Now, serpents in folklore anywhere in the world, they're usually told of as being guardians of sacred spaces. And folklore tends to tell these stories of people trying to steal from the dragons because there's something uh, they want uh, to grab, smash and grab stuff. We know all about that. Uh, that the the dragon is trying to hold up because it's the uh, in the gooder folklore, better folklore from the east. The dragon is there to protect the resources and the life for all people. But in the western story, it's treasure to, for the taking. Of course, very different attitude. Uh, but many uh, storytellers, uh, unfortunately, they make the dragons aggressive, and I think that's to get audience attention. And it gets audience attention, it seems, if, you, if the story spreads fear and uses it as a control, people get gripped by that. Again, that's topical, isn't it? So other uh, storytellers, unfortunately, there's some other storytellers that do make the dragons and serpents come across as caring and loving and that they encourage compassion and trust amongst the listeners. So you've got the two types of storytellers even with the dragons and serpents. Now, the stories around the world of uh, female white serpents, and I think I've got an old illustration here, uh, female white serpent or snake. And there you go. There's the white serpent transforming into a goddess. Um, and that's a spring thing, uh, a spring belief in China and some of the Orient. And uh, also, uh, again, sticking with the Orient is the belief that the dragon and the serpent, the dragon especially, it's more serpent here, is a bringer of rain for the crops, uh, for the sprouting seeds, and it's all about trying to do good. And all along in some of these stories, the serpents are doing this, and they're hoping that they eventually get a reward. It's said the, the serpents dream that as they attract all the water and the rain, and they get life going. Their actual dream is that before the summer's done, before the harvest is done, this is going to be the year when they'll get transformed into being a goddess. Uh, so that, uh, and there's another comment here. That's, uh, and there's Elizabeth uh, Flynn. Uh, hi from County of Wexford, wet and windy. 
hopefully that will go away from you and glad you're enjoying that hi elizabeth there and uh sharon uh oh yes not winning bail we said hello i agree thank you uh, again uh, for being with us and uh on we go now i'm gonna spend a few more yeah i said i'll talk about the kundalini so let's get on to that pretty well i'm sorry i'm an amateur with this uh if there are any guests that could give us much more information uh but this is what uh, how i approach the philosophy of kundalini anyway so and because it appears to be very related to these water dragons and serpents so kundalini a goddess uh, described as a sleeping serpent coiled three and a half times around the base of the spine and the first chakra uh, her name from the word uh, yeah well that's the first coiled up is the first chakra isn't it and uh, her name it seems has come from kundala meaning coiled in hindu but that's also that word's also linked to the persian maybe babylonian i would highly suspect that or from the northern shamans which i would think is older older coming through babylonia to persian uh, culture as it was and into the hindu but i suppose uh let's put this up this is i understand kundalini is a journey from being that coiled snake and kind of uncoiling into spiritual maturation uh, sort of a symbol for this if that can be understood and the symbol of this journey being two snakes coiled around the staff and crossing over each other at seven points there's a sort of a graphic illustration of that and within ourselves we have these seven chakra points and this goddess serpent when awake and climbs upward chakra by chakra until she reaches our crown chakra at the top of her head and as she pierces each chakra she brings an awakening to us now perhaps this is like um, the wisdom of the origin of the word draken uh, that was applied to when the goddess journey is complete a subject is said to be fully enlightened with kundalini and kundalini as i understand it is really the unwinding of the life force and this is what the the dragon and serpent folklore is all about as well now some texts uh, describe kundalini as two serpents coiled around the spine much like the image of the double helix uh, about the na and uh, of course that's got incorporated into well it hasn't been incorporated because the caudaceous uh, symbol was around long before rather long before the uh, dna maybe that symbol was trying to tell something tell us something before the dna was actually discovered uh there's quite a few things from babylonian times that we discover in a scientific way with a different explanation later on so we have uh can i come back to some example here maybe try that one serpent to the left the ida nadi serpent to the right the pingala nadi now, symbolically, a serpent's been considered to be a power beneath the earth, as I've really been explaining. And that's the power that makes the plants grow, the trees go. So I can imagine the Kundalini rising is a lovely description. We think of it of ourselves in meditation, but I think I tend to, <laughs> excuse me. I tend to think of it more as rising the new spring, the new plant growth. You know, when the seeds and the bulbs come up. And you've got the uh, new seeds, uh, maybe new trees, and the buds starting to open. This is all a sort of Kundalini rising up until the harvest. Uh, so that's definitely breaking through it. So that's me on Kundalini. Now, before our life quest, I would like to talk a little bit about the mythology of dragon lines and uh, this is sort of image of the world dragon lines uh very mysterious some of you there and do say about it talk about it if you are some people um amongst our guests uh, probably ley line hunters there was a time when i was a bit of an addicted to ley line hunter uh definitely through my teens and 20s 
and uh, starting off with uh, Alfred Watkins' Old Street Track and uh, then on to John Michelle uh, and various other writers. But Leyline Hunters believe that the Iron Age Druids, if they were, I call the Druids in phonetics, I call them Druids, but the Iron Age Druids, let's call them that, onwards believed in the dragon symbol as the whole of creation. Now, one interpretation uh, is of uh, a dragon being part of uh, a serpent. Well, let's, let's get this. Get, I'm trying to imagine this through. Interpretation is that the dragon is actually part serpent and part bird. So the serpent part represents the underground merging with the above ground with the wings. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, here's a serpent on the ground. And uh, a sort of yin and yang, I suppose. You, know, you get the ground serpent uh, above uh, the earth. Uh, if you've got the dragon with the wings, down below you always hear of the yin, the cool, the cold, the water. Above the ground it's the sun, the light, and the warmth. And here's a lovely yin-yang that kind of explains what I'm fumbling around. There you go, yin and yang. We've got a, a water and a fire dragon together. And here's another artist impression of that as well. Although I think, you know, with the colors, that gives that away. But I, I think that's a, a prettier one. Now, the sub-old tales of the serpent underground, as I say, a serpent being underground, and actually it's born out of water, comes above ground, sprouts wings when it comes to the surface. Now, John Michelle and his view over Atlantis pointed out that every continent has some sort of belief in dragons, and these dragons being a symbol of fertility. The common path of this is life being a fusion of all elements. And the way that John Michelle explained it was uh, you get a living, every living cell is born from the earth, it's fertilized by the water below in the earth, deep down, and the wind above as well. So there you go. You've got the, um, you've got the yin and yang explanation there for John Michelle of the yin and yang turning seeds into dragons. And I think I've got another nice symbol for that. Here's the third one up. Uh, so seeds become dragons. <laughs> But yin and yang and feng shui, they all sound very oriental, and they are, aren't they? But we do tend to, I think we do tend to lean a lot on the oriental for our mysticism and for an explanations of our spirituality quite a lot. Now, John Michelle also pointed out that the so-called druids practice a craft that we call geomancy, which is also known lay of the land and this is so if you're a lay hunter you probably be quite familiar with drawings like this and this uh, lay of the land or geomancy is a careful surveying of the land for um, home construction constructing our homes community gatherings and places for seasonal celebrations now today a modern diviner's term for this is commonly seeking out the thin places and here's a thin places explanation. So whether it's geomancy, lay of the land, or thin places, I'll leave it up to you. Now, ley line hunters believe in straight lines connecting what we loosely call sacred sites. I've just taken this Scottish one as an illustration. And individually, we know these sites as uh, the pointers being churches, stone circles, cairns, holy wells, and many standing stones as well. Also, Iron Age and medieval fortresses are considered as thin places too. And as Robin Williamson once said, you might be familiar with something like this, but I love the way Robin Williamson's described this. I've mentioned this on Sunday sessions before. But he says that where there were sacred places where the water serpent would appear, these became druid sites, they became church sites, they became monastic sites, they became fortress sites and castles that then became Victorian country mansion sites. And today, they're building sites. So, ley line hunters, uh, they would say that uh, all these sites where the ley lines cross over 
a power centers. There's another, there's the Michael's line, which every Laolan, uh, lay, but every lay hunter, that's kind of their big mascot. That's the one that leads it all. And power centers indeed. Uh, and my own personal belief is, I tell, uh, as I say, I was a ley line addict. I'd follow these lines almost like walking straight, going these straight lines. But my personal belief these days is that the setting of ley lines could actually be the human ego developing the, the sites, putting the sites where they are to display the vanity of human construction. Because I always, when I approach stone sites now and think of the human creation, it tends to be more of a display of, look what we can do, look what we can build, look at the power and strength we've got over you, rather than actually be a sacred site. They might have cleared off a grove of oak trees or something to put these stones up, but that's my view. There's very much a, a lot of vanity in this, but that's a personal opinion. Well, if that's so, and uh, these sites eliminate a uh, uh, line life energy to a grid, is that due to our manipulation of it? I don't think human science has verified any of that, though. So this is all in the mystic realm. It's what we discover, what our what we feel, as I say, thin places. What do we feel when we go there? What's our interpretation? What's the story? Um, what's the prophecy we get? And that's what we go along with. So even though that's my opinion, everyone's going to have a whole circle of stories for something like that. And you can share some in the, in the comments now. Uh, even if you say, oh, you're talking a load of crap, John. <laughs> I don't mind that stuff at all. Anyway, another link that I've heard from a couple of native people. I went to the Hiawatha Festival in Upper Michigan uh, a couple of times. Uh, a lovely event. Uh, I won't go into how it started, but it's, it really is to do with some uh, old Finnish people using the old language and found they could speak to the native people who spoke to the similar language. So they got together and got the High Wealth Festival. Now, when I was there and, and talking to some locals and native people, they said that these lines were caused by herds like buffalo, elk, deer that tend to migrate in straight lines. And so humans set up stations along these paths. So that's the way they explained it. Now, funnily enough, there's some buffalo, and they don't look like as if they're going along in a straight line, do they? But I get the concept of what they were talking about. And archaeologists and anthropologists here in Ireland are now following ideas, considering that, and considering the, the time of uh, cairn building, the ancient uh, cairns, and I'm near Karakil here, five and a half thousand years old, that they were built during a time, uh, an age of some global warming, and the grazing cattle, because the people of that time, the New Stone Age, I gather they had a, quite a reliance on cattle. They were settled farmers, but the grazing got bad, so the cattle started wandering off. They couldn't feed themselves, so they wandered off to graze, and uh, also in straight lines. So for a while, these settled farmers became semi-nomad, uh, following their cattle as they could no longer contain them and feed them in their fields. So this is a new study, seems to be a new study of the last few years by various archaeologists and anthropologists. And uh, this is while others stayed behind, it said the women stayed behind, and uh, created stone cairns and maintained them. And here's a couple of uh, uh, Karakil ones there. There's a couple of... Uh, uh, that one is G and H. Uh, there's, there's 14, I think, there all together. And uh, they said they were built to be bone banks of their ancestors because these tribes, they honored the bones of their ancestors that uh, after the flesh had been burnt or fed, the bones existed were where their ancestors lived and where they stayed. And they always loved to honor these bones, uh, sometimes broken up, put in pots, to honor them as season ceremony times, especially so on. But if they become nomadic because they had to follow the cattle, they couldn't transport all these pots of bones. So that's one theory, were these built as bone banks? And uh, there was apparently another tribe around still at the time. They followed the water, they followed the shores, 
and their whole culture was very different. Uh, they believed uh, their entire spirit was in the water and uh, not in the bones. So there we go. It's almost as if the two ancient races that were around uh, what is now Ireland, uh, from, and this is the water people about arrived, they say, 12,000, roughly 10, 12,000 BC, 8,000 for these bone people uh, arriving, the farmers, very different cultures. But anyway, so that's almost as the humans were like the water uh, serpents and the fire serpents, because this was very much a fire crowd as well. Anyway, move on. Um, so grazing mammal migration. To me, that's the only thing I really recognized in nature. Uh, I think about this often. It's the only thing I think I can recognize in nature. That actually goes in a straight line. So this leads me to another belief that's not so well adopted by the ley line hunters, is that if there are dragon lines, let's look at the birds. You know, you take birds, and uh, the way they migrate when they take flight, they, they fly in arcs. They take roots, they're in arcs. And sometimes it's like uh, in and out, in and out. It's like a helix path. And here, I forget, this is some kind of swan that's in Texas. And that, and that red line is, I forget the species, but I've got this graph. That red line you see is their migration to the north and turn around how they come back. It's not exactly an arc, but not exactly straight lines as well. But that's the only thing I could find to give an idea of what I'm uh, talking about there. Now, say, some ley line hunters call the straight ley lines dragon lines too. Now, ley lines are thought of as being like acupuncturists like this one, that uh, when they take their craft onto the land, they think of the ley lines as thought of as being the meridians of the earth, that is the health and the life flow of the earth, just like acupuncturists identify the meridians being the map of life flowing through a network through our bodies. And ley hunters, when I was deeply into it, believe that the earth has some kind of meridian too. Now, this is not a faith I follow anymore due to the considering I can't see anything else in nature that flows in a straight line except these migrating mammals. But to me, it does seem like the human mission is often to control and convert life into neat and tidy straight lines. So being the old fart I am, I've kind of reduced it to that. Is Are we believing in nade lines because of our logical culture of we love stuff to be in neat and tidy straight lines? Ancient people built their homes in circles. Their language also went in circles and spirals. But as soon as we go into scribing, everything is linear. Once everything was linear in scribing, all of the homes, all of the places of congregation, even the churches, suddenly became rectangular. They became box-shaped, and they became lines. And there's a story when I was uh, worked as a mason on Iona, and uh, one thing you noticed with uh, old medieval buildings, that none of the corners are 90 degrees. And uh, I was told, oh, that was to demonstrate that um, humans are not perfect, that we can't have the 90 degrees. Uh, otherwise, we're in, you know, we got notions that we're perfect. But then I also heard from um, mason, um, old medieval mason culture, which was conflicting to the uh, monastic culture, is that they did? Uh, they refused to do the ninety degrees because if you go into astrology, uh, ninety degrees is a kind of um, challenge, isn't it? So they wanted to avoid the challenges that the ninety degrees done. Anyway, I believe more in what happened uh, during my bird migration and DNA to, uh, helix waves. To me, it's a bit like how I imagine Kundalini rising, really, as well. So this would mean there were crossing points still. We've still uh, got these crossing points where the waves meet, just like the laid line hunters look at the crosses, straight crosses, and those crossing points being regarded still as thin places. And amongst the most famous of these places regarded by this 
uh, we're looking at England a lot still, but look at Stonehenge, Avery Circle, Salisbury Cathedral, Glastonbury, all that area uh, regarded as thin places. And some stories tell of these crossing points as being places where the water serpents or water dragons stop and rest, as I mentioned earlier. Now, there are King Arthur stories, which, of course, is from around that region. And it's told that he dreamt of dragons, especially at Mordred's conception and just before Mordred killed him. And in that final dream, the legend tells of Arthur actually being eaten by dragons just before he's killed. So to me, what this brings to mind, and we're actually coming to Ireland at last, is the um, interpretation of the Sheila and the Gig imagery. I'm not going to show some Sheila and the Gigs, but a friend of mine, a friend of ours at a funeral a few years ago said, isn't it strange how we enter this life coming out of a hole and we leave it by going into a hole? Now, on the peaks of Ballygordy Hills near Sligo town near here, there are remains of ancient cairns where ancient Breffney chieftains, chieftains of the area where they were buried. And it's said that these places were chosen because the water from these cairns, the water from their bodies, would release from their bodies and flow down back into the locks that were nearby these cairns. And there's two locks there, so I'm not sure which one they're referring to. Here's Loch Lumen, which is below the Ballygordy Hills. But some say it's Loch Daggy, which is that one, that pool there, and that's Loch Gill in the background there. And uh, these locks acting as Sheila and the gigs in the landscapes, they release the body water flying into the loch, and this returns to where the water serpent may be to collect. So again, you've got um, uh, folklore crossing the water serpent with the earth goddess. Hey, I haven't, uh, there's a few comments there. Let's see what you're saying at the moment. I hope that wasn't too uh, messy. Hello, Marjorie. Uh, Cosmic Mirror through the YouTube. Hello, hello, hello. And uh, yes, uh, there we go. Greetings from Rock Hill, South Carolina. And Mary Dwyer, uh, not too far away from here. Lovely to see you here. And Sandra Elizabeth Medium, good day to you too. And uh, uh, like the ground serpent pig. Uh, that was, I'm glad you thought that was a magical one. Um. Uh, great, lovely. Thank you uh, for being uh, with us. And for those of you who have missed the first part, this is going to be automatically archived so you can catch up on the introductions. Uh, anyway, as I mentioned earlier, I'm just going to a quick drink here. The serpents, or dragons especially, didn't seem to appear into Irish and UK mythology until the monastic scriptoriums got into business. And uh, with, back to my pictures again, find my pictures. And with the increasing Christian aff affiliations, dragons appeared in their scriptorium writings. And uh, uh, they appeared as uh, serpents and dragons. Um, in these scripts, there were, the water symbolism in the, the, with the scribes became eventually replaced by fire symbolism. And then it didn't take long for these, during the medieval times, when these scribes associated them with the devil. Uh, and we know where that went. Now, I often uh, mention the uh, battle between a woman chieftain, Groenia, and the Fomorian Drekken after he tried to wound Lura into mating. And I've explained how that story evolved from being Gronya and Draken into the more patriarchal George and the Dragon. So Gronya changing the gender to George. And when that happened, when uh, Gronya became George, then the third character came in, the humble maid of servitude. She was in there. And there's various stories that have reduced Gronya and the various Gronias in storytelling uh, who have been told of being leaders, they've been reduced to servants as well. And I think Dermot and Gronia's story, which, which is an epic Irish epic, epic that a lot of people know, and that's perhaps the most uh, famous example where Gronia was kind of reduced in status in some way. 
Now, through the scriptoriums, it's assumed that George became the patriarchal priesthood, the dragon became Satan, and the old beliefs of the saved woman. I've got a George and the dragon illustration here. Uh, is this it? Yes, this is it. So in there, George, the patriarchal priest, the dragon, the Satan, and the saved woman, who is the savior, symbolism of the symbolism of the savior and servitude of Christianity. However, the dragon has become the hero of some storytellers, but a scaremongering symbol with other storytellers. But the scaremongers are the fire dragons. And uh, it's quite well known that Wales still carries the red dragon flag and they carry it with pride. There's uh, the Welsh red dragon. Uh, I let's see if I can pronounce this right. The Edric Gok Dickery Kitchwin. Let's try that again. Edric Gok Kitchwin. And that's the red dragon leads the way. That's how that translates. Um, right. Um, Anyway, there's a couple of you again. Uh, Linda Rosewood. Hello, Linda. One of our sponsors, Wendy Donegal. Great stuff today. Glad you enjoyed it. Uh, glad you joined in. I hope the sun that we've got here, sun and warmth and nice spring weather is going to hit you in Donegal soon. Maybe not today, uh, but uh, glad you're joining in. And uh, love to you there. And uh, and have a wonderful day. What else we got here? Wendy uh, Willow uh, from Ontario sending love and light in these difficult times. Well, I hope it's not too difficult. There are some joyful things we can get on with despite being locked up and uh, so forth. So here's to your lovely time. Oh, and Linda, uh, love to our team is there. And uh, if she's watching, lots of love to you both. Uh, all right, move on. And... Uh, there we go, more pictures. Um, so a bit more about water dragons, I think, uh, being water bearers and bringers of fertility. <coughs> now in the East, um, in the Orient, the dragon snakes and serpents, as I've been repeating, are symbols of water. But have they always been so? Anyway, considering dragon snakes and serpents uh, called upon for water, uh, it's said to be the, the bringers of rain, which uh, after it looks like Donegal is still getting uh, their fair share in the wind there. And uh, I have I have a decent rain picture to go with that. There's a dragon in the sky bringing rain. I think that's a lovely picture. I love that one. And uh, there's the Irish stories of them. The dragons actually creating rivers and, and putting heat upon them to create clouds and rain. So a combination, even the water ones can put the heat on. <laughs> now there are the river girls also. Uh, I talked about the serpents um, in the locks, uh, the stories of the serpents in the locks and also the rivers. But there's also the river girls that become goddesses. Shannon is perhaps the most famous. And Boan is another one uh, for the Boan. And when we pass on from this life, the serpent symbol seems to interpret it that we still carry on as something else. Uh, we don't just get born and die, and that's the end of it. So in a way, there's this whole link to the water, that when the water leaves our body to be, it becomes part of the underworld, like I was showing there, uh, Ballygawley Mountains, where the chieftains wanted to be high up, so the water from their bodies rolled down into the locks. That, that sort of ties into that. So if the body, uh, if the water from my body was released, got its freedom it, and got into the soil, it might find and join an underground stream. It may join an underground river, maybe evaporate into the clouds, maybe fall as rain showers. You know, your ancestors might be falling today. And this water serpent within us, it's within us at the moment in our body temple, but then it becomes free. And the stories of the Tour de Danon being sent to live underground also causes me to think of the serpent race. Uh, were, were they a serpent race? As snakes, underground snakes? 
And there's late, uh, there's also, to link all this, I'm trying to get around to this, the idea of the late serpents and such as the Loch Ness Monster. Let's bring up a few Loch Ness Monster pictures. There we go. If you've been there, you're familiar with that, that site. And there's a jolly Loch Ness Monster there. And, uh, and there's a third one splashing around there. Look at that, a real-life photograph of a Loch Ness Monster splashing around. And the multi-headed nagas, uh, they become human or serpent. They said they resided in underwater lakes as well. And that their offspring, offspring created rivers uh, from waterfalls and springs. And off that goes into a river from there. Uh, and from the rivers evaporated into clouds. And fell as rain. Now in Greece, there's the echidna, the half-woman, half-serpent, similar folklore. And there may be similar in Ireland. And there's also the giving out court in Ireland, uh, the rain uh, clouds during the summer, but we want those rain clouds. Hence why this country, I think, is a land of saints, scholars, and storytelling because of the wisdom that comes to us uh, from the rain, from the serpents, from the rivers. It all interlinks. That's why uh, we are the storytellers and scholars. It's the, it's the rain. <laughs> uh, anyway, the water serpent realm for me is a bit like a secret guardian of folklore. It's the guardianship of folklore. And uh, so uh, let's see what you're saying about that. Beautiful images. I hope it's all making sense there, Donna. <laughs> and uh, Sharon May, thank you. Fascinating info. And thought of the dragons of water beings. Uh, yeah, very much so. I sort of uh, like that better. And, I, and, of course, that's been around, I think, a lot longer. Very much the Oriental, um, very much, uh, as I've been saying, uh, Indo-Asian uh, Indio countries. Uh, yeah, Indo-Asian countries like Thailand and uh, Vietnam, Laos, uh, Cambodia, very much. And Nepal, of course, a bit further over, very much into that uh, folklore and celebrating it. But, of course, in uh, the West here, the folklore is more about the earth goddess than the water serpent. I think the a lot clash because the water serpents are generally regarded as feminine as well. The fire ones tend, the fire dragons, we always think of as males, and they're really talk, talked of and told in stories of males. But the water ones are always females. And if you go back to the yin and yang that I showed earlier, the water underground, the yin, the female, the feminine, and then the yang are the fiery, uh, the male. So it's just all part of this symbolism package, whichever you feel comfortable with. Um, and it's a shame that that's all regarded as superstition, fear, devil, so forth. And I, if there's one message today, is take that away from you. And uh, don't be afraid of dragons. <laughs> don't be afraid of serpents. Uh, they're all part of the spreading of life. It's something to be grateful for, the movement of water. But in a way, the she and the face stories are a little bit more gentle maybe than the serpent ones. So I'm just taking all this uh, from another angle today. Um, anyway, uh, I don't have any guests, unfortunately. Nobody came up to talk about Kundalini or anything else. And, uh, oh, uh, one thing I must bring up with, I think I've got some pictures on it. You know, there is actually uh, a, a reptile that's called a, a water dragon. And there he is, or her. There's a water dragon. And uh, it's very common. It's a native reptile of Thailand. Uh, it's also found in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and uh in Southwest China as well. And many people, they keep these as pets. And there's one, there's uh, one in action coming out of the water there, just to prove they are water dragons. And they are very, uh, they're, they're very docile um, and friendly uh, as pets, so I'm told. And they, and they actually relate and interact uh, with their pet owners. They are just like a snake or something put into a cage and they ignore you. There is an interrelationship. But even so, 
It's not for me. I wouldn't have one. Uh, because it is a wild animal. It, it is for the wild. And despite its obvious favorable responses to human kindness, I think it would be fine if there's, you're living in Thailand and somewhere and uh, you've got a water dragon that comes up to you and says hello or whatever they do. Leave it to the wild. That, that's my feeling on it. Anyway, um, let's see if you've got some more about that. So a little bit on, on water dragon. Dragon energy, yeah, all for it, eh? Uh, <laughs> great stuff. Uh, so nobody's volunteered uh, for panel time. We, I've nearly done an hour anyway, haven't I? Uh, uh, all by myself, goodness me. We will have guests next week, and I'll be talking about that shortly. And I trust you've uh, enjoyed this afternoon, even though it's uh, just me, but I've not finished yet. Um, keep on asking questions about uh, anything we've talked about uh, this afternoon. Is there any pictures here that I've, that I've not uh, told you about? I don't think so. I think I've sort of covered it all here. Um, so no panel today. And as I say, these uh, Carol uh, Sunday Sessions and Labyrinth Gardens are brought to you through uh, Patreon subscribers. So to remind you what uh, goes on there, I need to do much more work on this. Um, many subscribers are watching live now. Uh, so thank you for your constant support. And say uh, it's difficult to be here because I use a lot of gear and subscriptions now uh, to keep, keep this to you. And uh, I'm slowly developing this sheet, water, and folklore course, taking longer than I thought because these weekly Sunday sessions take quite a bit of preparation, as you can imagine. Uh, but this is happening. And uh, to subscribe, it's just a, a, a dollar pa a pound or euro or more per month, and it goes to uh, that address there. So uh, thank you very much. Oh, it hasn't come up anyway. Let's see if I can... It hasn't. Ah, there we go. There it is. Uh, so thank you very much for your attention. Anyway, well, it leaves me now to tell you what's coming up on the next few Sunday sessions. Now, next week, definitely got guests, although not Seamus, unfortunately. Uh, it's dowsing. Uh, so we'll have uh, a couple of dowsing uh, guests, a, co a couple of different approaches to dowsing. So they'll, they'll be with you. And I do a bit, and I'll show you my tools that I use and how I've used pendulums. So there's a bit of me and some guests as well. And then on the 28th of February, we've got one of the five Orm sessions. And this one is the tree language story. And one or two people have asked to be guests on that. Uh, so that's going into the origins, not only of tree language to Orm, but tree language as an origin of various other languages. We, we're used to our linear languages, but I love the Orm because you read it from the ground upwards, uh, and uh, that's what I love about it. It really is literally starting from our roots and working upwards. So that's going to be on the 28th of February. And then on, uh, we're going to have a month of tree stuff. So this is like a transition, and it's going to be practical stuff. 7th of March, we're going to do go into bare root tree planting, it's the last month, really, for doing this. It's something you can do through the winter. But a lot of people, they leave it to last minute, and, they, and March tends to become a major tree planting time. So this is the first of three hands-on practical tree sessions that will be hosting in March. And there'll be some folklore with that as well, of course. Uh, and let's, let's have another look at your comments here. Um, fascinating. I'm glad you enjoyed that because, as I say, I often wonder, it's just me uh, uh my voice in this and i'm just hoping you're going to ask questions and say something that will take me away from this so uh thank you all uh today um so, as i say it's strange not having uh the guests uh but uh i've enjoyed uh presenting this to you thoroughly and i trust you're going to go on to an enjoyable valentine's day as superficial as it might be but we can we have fun with it don't we uh, so th for those of you watching this as an archive, um, keep commenting and enjoy. Some people will be watching this. Not many people tonight, maybe because of Valentine's, but they'll watch it tomorrow and through the week. And people sometimes watch these months ahead. But it, whatever time you're watching, do the comments. I check them um, 
I check the comments and answer when I can. Subscribe and click on the bell icon uh, icons. The, the YouTube, I know, has one. I think Facebook has one. And that will remind you of details of the next Sunday session. So thanks very much. So uh, me to say enjoy a very safe week full of wonder, lots of inspiration, wonderful enchantments, lots of love. So until next Sunday, play well. And it's, it's just bye-bye from me. And thank you for being with us this afternoon. <laughs>